So we're in the sixth week of a sermon series based on Luke's gospel. And uh, thus far, Father Tyler and I have talked about it, various aspects of generosity in your life. And you may have gotten to this point and said to yourself, well, you know, for 2018, they've talked about my time, my talent, my hospitality, my ministry. I just won't write a check to the church this year. I'll just give those things. Not so fast, my friends. <laughs> Finally, on week six, we get to generosity and your wealth, okay? That's what we're talking about today. Now, wealth and your financial commitment to the Lord's ministry is not the only indicator of your personal relationship with Jesus, but Jesus thought it was a powerful indicator of where you stood with God. Not the only, but a powerful one. Where your treasure is, he said, there your heart's going to be, Jesus says. And so it's important. In fact, Jesus talked more about the stewardship of personal finances than he did about prayer. Isn't that amazing? More about stewardship than he did about prayer. So it was important, okay? Tim Keller says this. He said, it is impossible to have a radically generous heart and not be shockingly generous with your wealth. Mm, tough one. So today we're going to look at Luke chapter 16. If you'll turn with me, this is one of the most difficult to understand parables in the entire Bible. So hopefully by the end of this sermon, we'll all understand it a little bit better. We're in Luke 16, 1 to 14, okay? Um, Jesus is preaching to an audience, which is his disciples. And there are some Pharisees in the background kind of listening in, I guess. And he says at the end of the story, those Pharisees were the lovers of money. They loved money. In verse 1, he sets the stage. Let's look at that together. There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man, this manager, was wasting the master's possessions. Okay, so you, you got that, right? Wealthy landowner, bukus of money, he's got this guy working for him who's supposed to invest his money wisely. And that word manager sometimes is interpreted as steward. You heard the word steward or stewardship? Literally, uh, oikonomen in Greek means the ruler of the house. So this guy, get the picture here, he's the COO, chief operating officer, and the CFO, chief financial officer. So he had all the details and the financial experience to invest in those details. But we got trouble brewing, don't we? Look at verse 2. The boss calls him in and says, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be my manager. Adios, sayonara, all zing, goodbye. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. The guy's given a pink slip here. You, you realize what's happening? And the man panics. He's clearly upset. And in verse 3, we see that. What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. You see his predicament? You know, I, I, I don't want to dig. I don't want to beg. What do I do? Why are those the only two options in his life? Why do you suppose? You, you suppose maybe he doesn't have any significant relationships? Doesn't have any friends on the outside that might offer him a job? Maybe he's never invested in people. He's always just invested for the master. He's virtually unemployable because he has no connections, no relationships. Look at verse 4, though. He hatches an idea. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Uh, they'll give me a job. 
That's what he's saying. And what does he do? In verses 5 to 7, he calls together all his debtors. Everybody that's been written a check from the master's household, he calls them together. So what do you owe, Bobby? He said, I owe, I owe this. Well, I'm going to discount it by 20%. What do you owe, my friend? Well, I owe this. Well, let me discount it by 50%. Deep discounts. He's writing the master's checks off. You see what's happening? He's investing now in people. He never had friends and influenced people, but now at the end of his career, he decides I'll invest in, invest in people. Now, you might think to yourself, what in the world is that about? Why would he be writing off the master's debt right before he leaves his job? Look at verse 8. It gets even harder to understand. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for his cleverness, for his intellect, for, for his last job responsibility of writing off all those debts. Why? He's writing off the master's money. Well, maybe not. Tim Keller, I, there are three different positions on this. I like the one that Tim Keller gives. And he basically says, this guy was a rotten, rotten guy. He had been charging above and beyond what the manager should have charged for the master. So he's been heaping large debts on people that they didn't deserve. And so he's been lining his pockets with the excess money that should have gone to the master. Uh, that doesn't win friends or influence people, does it? But it does prove the point that he wasn't well-liked. Nobody's going to give him a job. But now he's discounting everybody. Everybody's saying, man, what a, what a great, generous person you are. You're writing off all this debt. Thank you. He's investing in relationships such that he gets a job on the other side. He's not giving away the master's money. He's giving away his money. I'd rather have friends later than money now. Money is here today and gone tomorrow, but those relationships will be with me into the future. That's shrewd, right? That's clever. That's intelligence. Yeah. But verse 8 at the end is where Jesus steps on my toes and everybody else's toes in here. Look at that. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their dealing with their own generation than are the sons in light. You know what Jesus is saying there? He's saying, look at this guy. He's motivated by selfish ambition for the future. Not God, but selfish ambition for his own self-preservation. And he is thinking strategically and cleverly and shrewdly about how and on whom he invests in the children of light, us, the disciples. Oftentimes, we're just willy-nilly. Oftentimes, we don't think strategically or generously or anything else. He said, that son of this world is more shrewd in dealing with his resources that God's given him than many Christians in this room today. Wow, Jesus stepped on my toes. I know he did. So the son of this world invested in secular business deals better than most Christians invest in the affairs of God. Ouch. Finally, Jesus sums it up in verse 9. He says, and I tell you, this is back to the disciples. I tell you, disciples, sons of light, I tell you to invest and make friends by the use of your wealth so that when that wealth fails and runs out, you may be received into the eternal dwellings. Invest in friends. Invest in people. I want to have three take-homes today. One, all Christians are stewards over money that's not their own. You're a steward over money just like that manager, that's not your own. Number two, 
all Christians should fix our eyes on things that endure into eternity, and we should invest in those things. Number three, it is love and not money that motivates generosity and stewardship. Love and not money satisfies the human soul, okay? Those three things. So if you get those three things, guess what? It will change the way you use your resources. Oops, I'm sorry, it's not your resources. That's point number one, right? All Christians are stewards of money that's not their own. So remember the manager is, is placed over a large household and he's called to invest according to the master's will. Sound a little bit like Christianity? Yeah, pretty much. I know. People like to say, it's my money. Stewardship time, the church is trying to separate me from my money. But it's not your money, is it? It's not if you're thinking as a Christian. You know, we like to say, I pull myself up by my own bootstraps. Or I work hard for my money. So hard for it, honey. As Donna Summers once sang <laughs> in 1983. But when you begin to think of your money, You've messed up the Christian gospel. It's not. Not your money. Think about this when you start to think that way. Who knit you together in your mother's womb? Who gave you the intellect to go to college or trade school and have the job that you currently enjoy and the income that you currently enjoy? Who causes your synapses to fire in such a way they cause your, your muscle fibers to move according to your will and your command? Who did all these things? God, 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 God. And God, because he provided your means and abilities to make money, he thinks it's his money. And it is. And it is. I love King David's attitude. He, um, you remember King David, very rich. And he, he saw it as an act of worship and joy to give back to the Lord, okay? And, and there's this one time in 1 Chronicles 29, 14. And he says, Lord, who am I? And who are these, your people, that we should be able willingly to give back to you? It was a joy for him to give to the Lord's ministry. Then he says, for all things come of you, O Lord, and of your own have we given you. Sound familiar? 80 million Anglicans every week say that. Question is today, do we believe it? Do we just say it? Does it affect the way that we invest in people and in ministry? All things come from you, O Lord. In Malachi 3, God sets the minimum standard for giving, and it's 10%. That's what a tithe means in English, a tenth. And so God says that, and he said, if you give less than that, then, then you're robbing me. You're not robbing yourself, you're robbing me. That's my, my sum. Um, and I know that people struggle with that. That's a big chunk of what we take home, 10%. But suppose this. Suppose that you were given a large pile of money, and somebody who gave you that money said, invest it in stocks and bonds. And at the end of the year, I'm going to come back. And he comes back at the end of the year, and, and that investment's grown twofold. And he says, you know, you invested my money. All I require of you is 10%. You keep the 90%. That'd be a good job, wouldn't it? I, I would die to have a job spending somebody else's money, and I get to keep 90%. And yet sometimes we begrudge, we fuss, and we fight about God's graciousness, and we fail to give the 10%, and he's saying you can keep the 90%. Point number two, invest on things that are eternal in the heavens. In other words, Jesus says, put your money in things that endure, okay? Um, this manager gave up immediate wealth 
He didn't line his pockets with a luxurious lifestyle. Instead, he invested in people and in things that endured into the future. He gave up immediate wealth for future blessings. Now, what does Jesus say in verse 9? He says, sons of light, Christians, invest in friendships so that when your money is gone, when it's all used up, you're going to have things that endure into eternity. You see Jesus' teaching there? No material thing is going to last you. In fact, manufacturers of the iPhone build in planned obsolescence. They make the battery last, what, about two years, so you'll get another one. Um, they, they don't put all the gadgets and gizmos in the iPhone 7. They put some of it, but they put others in the iPhone 7S and then the 8, and they want you to continue to upgrade. What about as stewards, managers, you and me, of God's wealth, said no to that? What about if we said, we're not upgrading because this is not a need for me. I may want this thing, but it's not a need. Think about this. For the price of two iPhone 10s that are coming out, you can invest in a priest in Kenya. And you could support him and his family for an entire year as he goes into the bush with the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And every soul that's won for Christ out there, for people who have never heard the gospel before, that will endure into eternity. That person's going to be with you in heaven. Think about that. You can't take your iPhone with you. As somebody once said, there's no U-Haul behind the hearse at the end of the day. Jesus says every saint that's saved, every sinner that goes from darkness into a child of light, they're going to stand at the gateway of heaven, and they're going to thank you for your investment one day. They're going to praise you. Thank God that you invested in my life and in the gospel. Look at verse 9. These people will receive you into the eternal habitations. What a glorious day that will be when we invest in people. C.S. Lewis put it in The Weight of Glory, a great book, highly recommend. He said this, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, they're all mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. He goes on to say that there's heaven and there's hell. And I quote, all the day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one destination or the other. There are no mere mortals. We're either going one direction or the other. So invest in people. Invest in the gospel that changes people's lives. And, and keep that picture before you of the saints welcoming you home and saying, thank you for investing in me. Number three, and we're finally finished, Christians are motivated by love, not money. Love satisfies the soul. All right? Ted Danson in 1980 had a movie called Dad, and there's a line in that movie said, making money made me feel like a man. No, making money doesn't feel like, make you feel like a man. It doesn't bring you security. It doesn't bring you satisfaction. It will not endure to the next life. All good stewardship begins with love. It begins with love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. The bottom line is, we can hear all this stuff about investing in people, investing in the gospel, investing in the future, but you can't do it unless you're motivated by the love of Christ and his gospel. Paul in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, trying to get the Corinthians to give to the needs of the saints, and he brings up the churches in Macedonia, and, and he says this, those churches, as a way of inspiration, 
They gave in their abundance of joy. In their extreme poverty, they overflowed in a wealth of generosity to take part in the relief of the saints. And then he turns to his church at Corinth and says this, And I say to you, not as a command. Isn't that brilliant? I can't make you be generous. I can't make you give of your wealth. I can't command you to do this, Paul says. But, he says to them, by your earnestness, prove that your love is genuine. Love motivates the generous heart every time. That's our motivation. No arm twisting, Paul says. No guilt giving. No shakedown. Simply consider this. Do you love Jesus? Are you thankful for the grace that he's bestowed upon your life? Do you love Jesus' people? That motivates you to be generous. Invest in people. It's love that motivates, not money. I'll end with what John Yates, the the wonderful priest of of, uh, Falls Church in Northern Virginia. There's a book called The Awakening of Washington's Church. Great book. He, he, he He was blessed with a fruitful ministry there. They lost their church because of the Episcopal Church. Now they're on the other side of things, reawakening by God's grace. But he said this, Did it ever occur to you that Christ never set up a stewardship program for the church? He simply changed people who have changed the course of history. The concern of Jesus's was that people's lives be changed and that they have, first of all, a changed heart, second of all, a changed attitude, finally, changes in behavior. Isn't that how the gospel of motivation from love, the the love of Jesus and his gospel and the love of God's people, isn't that how it works? Jesus changes your heart, then he changes your attitude, and finally it changes your behavior. We can say what Jesus said and hear the teaching all day long, but we cannot do it until the gospel affects our hearts. So may God change our hearts, make us radically generous, and if we become lovers of Jesus, lovers of his gospel, and lovers of his people, then generosity will naturally flow out of our hearts.